0: Good morning. It is always good to be with you. It's always uh, exciting to start a new message series for us to focus on a new section of Scripture. Uh, and the Sermon on the Mount is, is one of those parts of the Bible that uh, if you go to church for any length of, of time at all, you've heard before in different ways, and yet it's also uh, one of the richest places in the Bible for us to spend our time and, and to focus and so I'm excited about what God is going to show us and, and teach us through this series. Uh, and I'm just glad that we're all together here at the beginning of the year, focusing uh, together on what Jesus asks us to do and be. It doesn't happen as much as, as it used to because of DVRs and TV on demand. Uh, those have really cut down on my chances of sitting through television that I'm not really all that interested in watching, but it still happens every once in a while, late on a Saturday afternoon or something, I will find myself, for no good reason, sitting through an infomercial, and I keep telling myself I'm going to change the channel, but there's just something about those infomercials that, that kind of sucks you in, you know, and I, they do all kinds of things with these products that you would never need the product to do. Like, I have never needed a vacuum cleaner to hold a bowling ball. I, I don't have a bowling ball, but it makes me want to get one, right, just to see if this vacuum cleaner can do that. I, I don't need a food processor that can chop up a golf ball, but suddenly I want to see what that might be like in my own, you know, kitchen. I don't need a set of, of knives that can cut through an old shoe. If I used the knife to cut through an old shoe, I wouldn't use it to cut my food ever again, and then there's this thing called the Sham Wow. Have you have you seen this? Like a chamois that can soak up a small pool before you have to squeeze any excess water out. And there's a Snuggie, which is basically an oversized blanket that somebody sewed arms into. Because who wouldn't want to wear a blanket in a chilly house instead of, I don't know, a sweater? And, and I would like to tell you that I don't own any of these things because I'm just not tempted, that I haven't had fleeting moments of, of wanting them. But it's really because I don't want to have to explain to Lauren why I signed us up for six easy payments of 19.99 for a handy stitch, which if you don't know what that is, it's a battery-powered, handheld sewing machine about the size of a stapler that would help you, know, help you sew your own pant hems while you're still wearing your pants. This thing exists. Now, at some point in all of these infomercials, re- regardless of how ridiculous the product is, the salesperson is going to do their very best to convince you that if you buy their product and use it, it will completely change your life. You know, those, those flabby abs will turn into abs of steel, and, and if you're single, you'll, you'll suddenly meet that special someone. If you're married, you'll suddenly be that special someone. If, if you, you know, use this product, you're, you're going to finally actually like healthy food. And not only will you eat the healthy food, but you'll meet a bunch of good-looking, healthy people that like to hike and go water skiing on the weekends. And, and if, you, if you get rid of those unsightly scratches on your car, your boss will notice and, and think, wow, you've really got everything together, and then you'll get a promotion. And it doesn't matter how thin and weak the logic is. They're going to try their best to tell you that you can buy, you can purchase a little piece of the good life if you'll purchase and use their fine product. The good life. That's a phrase we hear often and it means all kinds of different things to different people based on the kinds of background and experiences we have. But it seems like for the most part in our culture, in our world, when somebody says the good life, they're describing a kind of life that is, filled with ease and wealth and never having to to deny yourself, never having to say no to anything that your heart desires. There's no sickness, there's no sorrow, there's no pain. It's like instant heaven on earth for six easy payments of 1999. And while this kind of fairy tale is just as made up as any other type of fairy tale, I think what makes it the most difficult for us is for some reason we are always tempted to fall for the sales pitch to think that the good life, this instant heaven on earth that that it's not just available to us but but it's there for the taking that it's within our ability on our own through sheer force of will, to become proud owners of the life we've always wanted. And so we listen. We listen far more than we should to people who we know don't really have the deepest answers when it comes to what it would mean to have a truly good life, and yet we keep hoping there's a shortcut. We keep hoping there's this secret that we've somehow missed out on. But we know deeper inside of who we are. We know that the only good life worth having, it's not something that you buy. It's not a life that's filled with good things, and it's not even a life that's filled with a string of good successes. The good life that you and I were created for is a life filled with experiences where we, we do good things for good reasons. And that at some point, we are able to wake up one morning and feel, with conviction, that through and through, we're good people. That's the good life. And it is not a life that we can purchase. It is not a life that has a shortcut. It is not a life that you and I have the ability to build and construct on our own without any help from God. God is the one who partners with us and helps us experience this, this good life. And we know what that life looks like It is the life of Jesus Christ. For 33 years, we get to watch as somebody, doesn't take a shortcut, doesn't try to purchase it, doesn't try to manipulate somebody else to give it to him, doesn't try to achieve it. But day after day, decision after decision, Jesus, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit and a reliance on God the Father, Jesus is able to experience the good life. ...that we were created for. And, and it doesn't look anything like instant heaven on earth... ...without any more sickness or sorrow or pain. No, it, in fact, what it looks like is a life that in spite of sickness and sorrow and pain... ...there is this joy. There is this hope. That, that while we may have to suffer, while people we care about... ...may have to go through difficult things, that the things that we go through that are hard they never get to win. It's a life that looks like something that's focused on other people and not ourselves. Not because it always makes sense to us, but because the God who makes us tells us this is how you should treat one another. This is how you should relate to one another. This is how you should think about each other. If if you've ever taken the time to read the Sermon on the Mount, we find that Jesus not only lives and models for us what the good life looks like in real life, he explains it. He talks about it. He tells us what to do. He tells us how to see the world. If, if you've read it out loud before, you're going to find out that in the, the span of basically 15 minutes, Jesus helps us see the truth. If only we will open the eyes of our heart and trust that the words he says to us are God's truth. But it's difficult. It's difficult because as you read the Sermon on the Mount, as you listen to the Sermon on the Mount, you find that not only is Jesus describing the good life, a life filled with doing good things for good reasons, until we wake up one morning and we realize that we're good people because of God's grace and goodness in our lives. It doesn't just sound inspiring. It sounds intimidating. There are places in the Sermon on the Mount that, if we're honest, just seem impossibly difficult. Jesus says that we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. That's the good life. Jesus says that, that we need to turn the other cheek when somebody attacks us. That when someone's trying to take advantage of us, they can't take advantage of us because we submit to them. We, we allow them to take what they need. He says that, that even when people attack us and are, are, are ugly to us, that we need to be careful about our feelings and our thoughts towards them because if we harbor ugly feelings and thoughts, we might as well kill them. He says that if if one of our hands causes us to sin, we should cut it off. He says, at one point, that if we want to live the good life, we're going to need to be perfect just as our Father in heaven is perfect. So we read these words, we listen to these words of Jesus, and while we do find hope and while we do find compelling images of what it might look like to be the people we always have wanted to be in our truest and best selves— we can also start to reach this place where we think there's no way. This is impossible. What Jesus is asking of us, just, it's impractical. Randy Harris, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, says, the real question is this, can you do this? Can you really live this way? Does Jesus actually intend for you to shape your life around the Sermon on the Mount? Or, Has Jesus intentionally set an ideal so high that you can't possibly live up to it? Is the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount to convince you that even when you've done your best, you've still not measured up, that you really are a bad person and there's nothing you can do but simply fall on the grace of God? Now that's a heavy set of questions to be wrestling with. But it's important for us to ask ourselves at the very outset of a sermon series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Can we do this? Or are we being set up for moral failure from the very beginning? Because how we encounter and engage that question will directly impact how we listen to this sermon. Can we do this? Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 7. We'll be starting in verse 24. Everybody who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise builder who built a house on bedrock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the wind blew and beat against that house. But it didn't fall because it was firmly set on bedrock. But everybody who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice will be like a fool who built a house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the wind blew and beat against that house. It fell and was completely destroyed. This is one of Jesus's most repeated parables. We have songs that we sing about the wise man building his house upon the rock and the storms and the rains coming. And what Jesus is clearly trying to say is that when we are busy building our lives, it is easy for us to focus on the wrong things, to focus on things that look like the right things, but but they're not really going to lead us to the kind of life we long for. Jesus says that while we often get lost in the daily details of our lives, if we really want to experience the good life that God wants for us, then we have to begin with the proper foundation. That what our lives are built on is more important than all the, the many different details we tend to focus on. And while there are all kinds of different foundations that people can can build lives on, right? We we see it all around us in our world. Some people build their lives on ambition desire, intelligence, achievement, success, other people's failures, still, still others of us struggle with feeling like we build our own foundations, and, and maybe we feel more like we inherit broken foundations from people in our lives, and so if we were to think about what, what are our lives built on, well, it's It's cracked. And, and it's not stable because it's insecurity and it's embarrassment and it's self-doubt. And so we try to, to move forward and we try to mature, but we feel like we keep getting stuck. We keep making these, these huge mistakes in, in not just the kinds of, of things that, that we want to do, but who we actually want to be. There are many different kinds of healthy and unhealthy foundations to build our lives on, but there's only one holy foundation. And the holy foundation that you and I can build our lives on is constructed of the words that we find from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He says that to us right here at the very close of his sermon, that the good life is built on the foundation of his words but see it's not just the words themselves and knowing the words it's it's not he he says right that we have to be people who hear the words and what put them into practice not define them really well or understand them or know which words they were in greek we are the people who hear the words and live those words Now, it wouldn't make any sense for Jesus to say this right at the close of his sermon and then for us to go back to the very beginning, which is what we'll be doing over the next couple of months, and decide that every time we read something that seems a little too difficult for us to live, he was just being dramatic or he was using overstatement or he was trying to talk about this ideal that we're never going to live up to. And so the whole purpose of the, the sermon is to make us realize our need for God's grace and to feel thankful for that grace and then to keep being who we already are. That's an unfaithful way to read, to listen to the words of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, I'm not interested in having admirers. I want followers. I'm not interested in you knowing the the contents of the words that I'm speaking. I want you to live these words every single day. I want you to build your life on the truth that I'm trying to live in front of you, and then I'm trying to explain to you why in the world you would live this way. Jesus believes that you and I can live this sermon. Now, he doesn't believe that we can individually decide to live this sermon perfectly from this moment forward. That's not what he's asking Robert talked about this love that God has for us where Jesus is the groom and the church is his bride and he he knows us well enough to know that, that we haven't figured it all out yet. And that what Jesus wants in a relationship with us more than anything else is not immediate, instant, moral perfection that somehow we achieve, but it is rather an open heart that is trying with everything inside of us to trust in the relationship and the love we have with God. And that that trust and that love with God then have this transforming power. Jesus is not expecting us to just snap our fingers and suddenly start living out this good life. What he is hoping is he doesn't preach this sermon just to you alone. He preaches this sermon to us. He preaches this sermon to a community of people. A community of disciples who individually are going to, to mess up and make mistakes, but as a community can embody this truth, can live this sermon, not perfectly, but faithfully. And the only way that's going to happen is by trying our very hardest, knowing that we still, we're, we're going to enter into experiences and We're going to have conversations, and we're going to do things that that when we look back, we're going to regret them, and and we're going to have to ask for forgiveness for those things. We're going to have to confess to God that we're still on a journey. Knowing that up front, but but in spite of all of that, trying our very hardest, and trusting that when we try our very hardest— God's partnering with us through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the love of Jesus Christ and through this grace that we don't ever fully understand and we definitely don't want to take advantage of, that one day we wake up and we realize that we are good people living this good life, doing good things for good reasons. And that's what we really want. That's what we long for. I promise you it would be better for us to try our hardest to live the life Jesus talks about here and fail spectacularly than for us to be so afraid of making a mistake that we don't really try at all. Just try. Have you ever watched four-year-olds try to learn how to play a sport? I, uh, <clears throat> I'm never going to forget watching Riley learn how to play t-ball when she wasn't even five yet. I I didn't realize that they had organized sports for people at that skill level. But we go to a few chaotic practices and I find out Rob, for the first time in my life, I'm going to have to be a Cubs fan because she's on the Cubs. And, and so we go, to, it doesn't, it's just I'm feeling nervous for the coaches that's so out of control out there. And so she gets up to, to bat to hit a ball off a tee, and she manages at her first at bat at this game to, to get a hit, which is great. We start cheering, and in her excitement, she starts running to third instead of first, and we keep yelling. And I think part of the reason she couldn't hear us is she had this batting helmet that was at least two sizes too big, And it was bouncing, and it looked like it was heavy enough to kind of take her down, but she looked like this, you know, human-sized bobblehead trying to go down the wrong base path. Her coaches finally get her, and we kind of get her over to first base, and I'm starting to feel like, okay, we got this. And as soon as she gets to first base, you know, someone else is a bat. And she starts playing with the grass, and she's touching the chalk line, she's waving at us, and... Then somebody gets a hit, because everybody gets a hit. So they get a hit, and she starts running, and she gets excited while she's running, and she runs into her own base runners on her team and then pass them. Because, you know, why not have a race in the middle of a baseball game while you're doing that? And, and then you get through all the offense, and I think, okay, well, at least maybe, you know— defense. We'll see how this goes. She gets out into center field because that's where they put the best players in center field. And she's out there and there's like 14 kids in the outfield. Everybody's too afraid to be in the infield because, you know, someone might actually get a hit. And so she's out there looking at airplanes and there's birds that's flying by and there's squirrels the, and she's waving back at us. At some point she takes her glove off. She puts it on the ground like a pillow and lays down and just looks up at the sky and she accidentally goes into the other team's dugout and and they call this baseball <laughs> but when she finally got up for the third time you know it was three innings she hits the ball and she remembers to run to first and she gets the first and she turns around and she looks at me with a smile like, aren't you proud of me, Daddy? And of course I was proud. Right? We're four-year-olds when it comes to this Sermon on the Mount. I, I don't care who you are, how long you've been doing this Christian thing. We're four-year-olds. And while a cynic might say, right, that a thing where you have to use tees and and everybody gets a hit and nobody gets out and there's only three innings while a cynic might say that has nothing to do with baseball it's it's baseball because it's a bunch of people trying right to do something they don't quite know how to do and so you go and you cheer and you're excited and there's green grass and there's colorful uniforms and there's the crack of the bat and it's baseball and as the kids get older, there's going to be more rules, and they're going to be enforced, and they're going to get better, and it's going to be a different kind of baseball, but it's still going to be baseball. We're four-year-olds trying the Sermon on the Mount thing. And if we do manage to get a hit, I'm pretty sure I'm going to run to third on accident. And then someone's going to have to lovingly say to me, That's, that was good, but this part right after here, you need to head this other direction. And I'm going to find that while I think I'm paying attention to the most important things in the game, I'm not. I've been distracted by all, all kinds of other things that are going on in the field that, that are, for whatever reason at the moment, seeming so important to me. But through practice, right, through, through time, through dedication, I'm going to get better at this. And, and I can tell you this much. I didn't go... To Riley's first t-ball game to watch a professional baseball game. I went to Riley's first t-ball game to see my little girl play baseball to try and as long as she was trying I was proud and if at any point in that game she kind of would have given up I would have been disappointed and embarrassed, but she didn't. She kept trying. She got distracted. She didn't have all the concepts down, but she kept trying. And that's all that mattered to me. And I promise you, our Heavenly Father is watching us try to live this life, and he is not ruthlessly keeping score. And he's not interested in pointing out all the ways that we're not yet perfect at this life we're trying to live. That is painfully obvious to anybody who's paying any attention. He's pulling for you. He's pulling for me. He's excited. He's celebrating every small thing we manage to do right because we've been trying and we're going to keep trying and something changes when you keep practicing. So as we read this sermon together over the next couple of months, as we, as we focus our hearts on it, when we listen to it, please, I'm begging you, Try. Try to believe that it's possible. I don't care how difficult it seems. Try to believe that with God's help and with this community's help, you and I, we're on our way. And all God wants for us, even if we think God's wasting his time watching us, all God wants for us is for us to keep going and to not give up and to not walk away. And as long as we're, as long as with with everything inside of us, we really are trying, he'll take care of the rest. He always has, and he always will. Jesus says, my people hear my words and try to put them into practice. And when the storms come, and brothers and sisters, the storms will come, if we want to not only survive those storms, but if we want to, in the midst of those storms, and in the wake of those storms, still be experiencing the good life that God longs for us to have, we have to start somewhere. We start here. We're going to sing together now, and as we do, we're going to have a few shepherding couples just outside these double doors that are waiting to pray with you and to talk with you, and so if you came this morning and you have anything on your heart that you'd like to talk with a, another Christian couple about, if you'd like to learn a little bit more about our church family, if, if you'd like to learn a little bit more about what it means to start a relationship with Jesus Christ, these couples are there, they're ready to receive you, and they want to talk with you. Go to them as together we stand and sing.